This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, really anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, because I'm concerned that you're safe if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, Tuesdays we have nothing going on, so let's get right to questions. While we await your phone calls, remember we like your phone calls. You're more interesting than I am. Our first one comes from Charles from our email inbox. Uh, He asked, does God cause bad things to happen when we sin, or are tragedies just part of life? Example, um, David's life after committing murder and adultery. I know Jesus walks with us through all bad times. Then why would he then create the bad times? I need to be clear on this because my neighbor has asked me this question and I don't think I answered her correctly. Charles, um, these are hard questions, but, but we can say unequivocally that God doesn't cause bad things to happen. Uh, God is with us when we do bad things, when we come to him in repentance. Those bad things can be forgiven. But one of the things that we have to understand is that there are consequences to the bad things we do. We make the choice of our own free will to rebel against God, and we will pay the consequences of those things. Now, you mentioned David. Uh, David committed murder and adultery. Um, um, David's sin, uh, there has to be consequences. Uh, and the consequences in David's, David's life were legendary. Um, just one bad thing after another, because you can't unring the bell of bad choices. So remember, God doesn't cause bad things to happen. When we sin, then there are going to be consequences, and Jesus will walk with you through those consequences, but that doesn't mean doesn't mean at all that he's going to help you avoid those. I think sometimes, Charles, those consequences are really important to teach us not to rebel against God in the future. If there were no consequences to the bad choices we make, uh, 
um, then we keep making bad choices. And the idea is that the consequences teach us two things. They teach us um, to avoid making those same kinds of bad decisions. But more importantly, they teach us that the presence of God is sufficient uh, when we're going through the consequences. You know, Charles, when I got saved, and now I've been saved for 32 years, uh, but when I got saved, I had done some really awful things. And and um, the consequences were, were, were like Niagara Falls just pouring over me. And uh, I was so aware of the Lord's presence, and he showed himself to me in miraculous ways throughout all of those consequences. However, he didn't make the consequences go away. He proved to me that he would be with me, that he would never leave me or forsake me. He proved to me that though my sins were, were forgiven, um, there, there were consequences that had to be faced. And in my particular case, Charles, the consequences lasted for about three years. And there were times when I felt like I couldn't handle it anymore. I can't take one more day of this. And Jesus would always show up. So um, we need to remember, God doesn't cause the bad things. We do the bad things of our own free will. And um, uh, remember, Jesus with us um, is because we go through those consequences. So I hope that's clear enough for you, Charles. But God doesn't make bad things happen. We sin, and then there are consequences or bad things that happen as a result of it. I know a lot of Christians would like to believe that that all we have to do is say, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me, and then the consequences go away. But we don't learn anything in those circumstances, uh, nor would we see the power of God in our lives. Paul and I were talking just this morning. She, it was something she was doing. But the Lord just was sort of speaking to her, and she was writing down, listing all of the, the the wonderful things God has done. Now, she didn't get them all, of course, but just memory after memory after memory kept coming back to her. And the result was she was able to praise the Lord and, and talk about the goodness of God even through the difficult things. And we all face difficult things. But Jesus will be with you. If you don't repent, he can't be with you. One other comment about David. Read Psalm 51. Also Psalm 32, but Psalm 51 in particular. Um, when, when David tried to hide his sin from the Lord, uh, when he wasn't taking responsibility, inside it was like he was wasting away. And then when he repented of his sin, he could say to the Lord, uh, Renew within me a right spirit and restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uh, that's the same thing, Charles, he'll do for all of us. So remember, God doesn't create bad things. Um, he doesn't create bad times. God is the rescue or the solution for those consequences that we have to go through. Thank you for the question, Charles. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question anonymously from our mobile app. Uh, Jesus told Peter that Satan asked for him. Does Satan do that with believers? Um, Anonymous, we can't rule that out. Now, you remember with Satan, uh, as as Jesus got closer to the cross, Satan got more and more active, and Jesus was very direct with Peter. Peter, Satan has asked for you by name. He didn't ask for the others. He didn't ask for Judas. He's asked for you by name. But I have prayed for you, Jesus said. So there's precedent 
um, that would suggest that Satan uh, does um, ask God for permission to attack us. Uh, I think most of the time anonymous, he uses his demons. Um, but but if if Satan is going to mess with you, he has to ha- go through the Lord. Uh, he has to have his permission. And if God gives him permission to do that, then God will be with you and his grace will be sufficient. But yeah, I do believe that Satan uh, asks for people by name. I think he wants to stop the work that God is doing. I don't think he messes with me because I'm like a junior executive to, to, to uh, the, the Satan wouldn't mess with somebody at my level directly. I mean, certainly demons do. But uh, yeah, he does. Um, I just don't think that most of us have to worry about Satan uh, knocking on the door of heaven and saying, I, I want to I get that Pastor Ron guy. Um, I just think that's just a normal course of spiritual warfare. One other comment about this anonymous that I think is important. We all of us need to know that while God could completely restrict Satan from coming near us, that too is a part of our growth process. That is what we learn uh, in our walk with the Lord. We learn that, that the devil is no match for Satan. Now, I hope we also learn that we're no match for Satan, but the devil is no match for Jesus is what I meant to say. The devil is no match for Jesus. So what we need to do when Satan is messing with us, when demons are messing with us, what we're going to do is learn to let Jesus do the fighting. I think it's really important that we learn that. You know, we like to yell, I bind you, Satan. I command you this and I command you that. He just laughs at us, Anonymous. What Jesus wants us to do is get to that place where, and I'll just, my own experience. He doesn't, the the Lord doesn't want me to talk to the devil. So I don't. I don't communicate directly with the devil ever. When I feel the presence of the enemy, when I feel the, the spiritual warfare beginning to build, my response is always, Lord, I want to hear from you. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to spend one minute of one day worrying about him. So I'm going to walk as close to you as I possibly can so you, Jesus, take care of him for me. And I like the picture, and this is just a picture in my own mind. But um, um, Hebrew says that he's our elder brother. Uh, I like big brothers. My big brother is three years older than me. Um, you know, he's six foot tall um, and, and pretty hefty. Um, but he was the same size when he was 10, 11 years old. He was just one of those kids who grew up so fast and was so big, bigger than all the other kids. Nobody messed with him. And because nobody could mess with my big brother, I was a mouthy little brother. And people wanted to mess with me. And every time they had to tried to come after me, they had to go through my big brother. And there were a lot of times I went running home to my big brother and said, John, I need help. And he would always bail me out. So Jesus will bail us out. So yeah, Satan, I think, clearly understood that Peter's role was going to be key. He asked for Peter by name. I think the attendant spiritual warfare obviously was uh, a large part of why Peter denied him on three separate occasions, um, but he um, he overcame because Jesus restored him. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is another question. This one comes from our email inbox, and it too is anonymous. Um, Pastor Ron, you had a question last week about Jesus being mean by the way he spoke to the religious leaders. 
In addition to your answer, he used terms like Satan to his disciples. Is it okay to call professing Christians or believers who are acting prideful Satan? Um, I don't mean to be funny, but my wife acts like Satan when she is hyper-emotional, yelling and breaking things. I've not said this to her, but my wife acts like Satan. Can I use that term for her to call her out? There are terms in the Bible like fool, stupidity, contentious, immature, nagging. What terms can I use to call her out? The loving and patient terms have not been working for her. I think I need to up the ante a little bit. Two things, Anonymous. You don't need to up anybody's ante. No unwholesome speech should come from your mouth. And no, it's not okay to call her Satan. Uh, you can tell her, and you, you should tell her in the most loving way you can, that she's acting in a manner that is inconsistent with the Word of God. If you're reading the Bible to her, and I'm, it seems clear by your question, you guys are not in the Word together, it'd be really easy to go to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, when she's acting like this, and read, this is the bad fruit of the flesh. And you describe some of her bad fruit of the flesh. And then you can go down to verse 22 and say, um, the, the solution is, this is the kind of behavior that ought to characterize uh, the walk of a Christian. And, and, and it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And, and you can talk about that, but you can do that in a constructive way. Here's the thing, Anonymous. It's not your responsibility to fix her, to use your term to up the ante. It's your responsibility to love her. And the fact that you're waiting for your approach to work indicates that you aren't trusting God, nor are you leaving it up to God at all. To call her Satan or to tell her that she's acting like Satan, that wouldn't be a constructive conversation at all. So I think there's a loving way to be firm. I tell my church all the time, you can be kind and direct at the same time. And I think there's a very kind thing that you can do. And you can say, uh, this is the way believers are supposed to behave. This is your flesh. How can I help? What can we do? And, uh, you know, to yell and break things is, is decidedly ungodly behavior. And I think what you need to do is really sit down, Bibles open. Don't do it in a volatile time, but sit down with Bibles open and ask her the question. In a time when things are going well, sit down with your Bible and say, this is the behavior, Galatians 5.22, that describes a Christian. That's not the behavior that you've been exhibiting when you're yelling and when you're breaking things. And then ask her if she's really saved. Not in a judgmental way. But say, this is the, the behavior that the Bible says. If you continue to read from 5.19 on, um, uh, Galatians 6, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 also has the same kind of, of information. It says, people who act like this or live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you can say, I'm concerned. How can I show you who Jesus is better? And then try to pray her and love her into the kingdom of God. But don't try to fix her so that your life gets better. You should be on your knees praying for this woman every single day. And I don't mean just casually. I mean praying for her, agonizing in prayer for her. 
one of the comment when you talk about terms in the Bible like fools and stupidity and contentious or immature or nagging, uh, you can read those things, but they're all in the don't be like that list. So it's very, very important. I hope that helps you a little bit, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to line one and talk about or uh, talk to Jimmy from San Antonio. Jimmy, yep. thank you. Uh, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Um, this, I, I can see it already. I know God told me, I know what the scriptures say, but, but, um, you, I don't know. It, it really, I know I'll never lose my faith in Jesus Christ. And I know that I will endure to the end. My wife being Christian, but, uh, um, uh, I was going to tell you that, um, you think this world government is going to try to take away our uh, faith in Christ and place worship and all that? Yeah, Jimmy, I can I can promise you they're going to try to take away our faith in Christ. They're going to try to take away the avenues of expression of our faith. They're going to rebrand and redefine the things that we say as hate speech. And yes, it's going to come to a place where um, being a Christian is going to be so frowned upon. Um, I, I mentioned in the program yesterday that um, in Oklahoma, uh, there was a, a preacher, street preacher, an evangelist, who was given a five-year restraining order. He can't be across the street any longer from an LGBTQ center in town uh, because they said that his praying and his reading the Bible um, um, was intimidating and threatening to them, and um, he was that that right was legally taken away from him. Now, if if he's um, committed, he'll be back there and he will endure the consequences. This is a, a court case we need to watch very closely because I think it's something that will go all the way to the Supreme Court, and um, the Supreme Court looks pretty good for something like this. But yeah, I can promise everybody that the government is going to try to take away our expressions of faith. They're going to rebrand them as being divisive and hateful, and uh, it's going to be harder. Um, uh, I'm old, Jimmy, so I'm not so sure it's going to get uh, that bad in my lifetime, uh, should Jesus tarry. But I can promise you, Pastor Ken and the younger men who will come behind me, uh, I think the handwriting is on the wall. And the one source of encouragement for everybody out there is that it is in times like these where the faith has always prospered the most. It's happened in Rome. It happened uh, throughout the history of the world when they try to, to uh, with the blood of Christians, uh, scare the rest of us. Uh, that's always when the church has thrived. And I think that will be the case as well. Um, it's like this in much of the world already. Uh, we're just uh, in the West, the last ones to find ourselves in this predicament. But yeah, they're going to try. And I think you said it well, Jimmy. Nobody can take away our faith. Uh, we've just got to be willing to stand firm and suffer any consequences that come from um, the government or anybody else trying to take away our avenues of expression. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I understand everything. I'm, I'm not afraid. Yep. I'm just glad. 
Yeah, you know, I'm 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 afraid. Um, I, I don't know how to be anything other than direct, and and uh, I'm not such a faith giant that I'm not afraid. But the truth is, um, I don't really have a choice. I'm a servant, and and servants do what they're told to do. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us, we're going to find that these are the, the lines that we have not, we have to decide we're not going to cross uh, in order to, uh, to demonstrate that our faith is real. It's easy to be a Christian in the United States right now. Uh, when it's not so easy, we're going to find out who the real believers, um, who they are. And Jimmy, I'm I'm confident that you're going to stand the test of time. Uh, you can pray for me that I won't blow it because I want to continue to be bold right up to the end. God yes, bless sir. you, Jimmy. Thank you, my friend. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. We love you and appreciate your input. Okay, thank you for your love. I'm, here it is. Someone corrected my kid for a semi-valid reason, but did so in a condescending way and tone that really bothered me and didn't address a bigger issue, in my opinion. I didn't speak up because I didn't want to undermine the authority of this person. But now I feel like a horrible parent for not sticking up for my son. What should I do or not do or should I do nothing? Um, anonymous, there's so the information that you give me is so general that I can't be very specific in terms of answering your question. Your your question. Um, the one thing I want to say to this, you know, we've we we have a school. I think most people know that who any familiarity at all with our with the work God is doing here. We have a free school. In our free school, um, we demonstrate every day how much we love these kids. And yet there are some kids who, when they go home and they get a bad grade or they, they're they disciplined or reprimanded in school, they'll go home and tell their parents something along the lines of, well, this teacher's got it out for me. You know, they pay favorite, play favorites with the other kids, and I'm not one of the favorites, so this teacher has it out for me. And that kind of sense is, you, you don't stand up. That's not a, a, a child that you stand up for. So I don't know what the semi-valid reason was. But the way you deal with that with your with your child is very simply just saying, okay, let's talk about any validity that the correction had. And let let God deal with the one who did it in a condescending way or a condescending tone. And don't let it bother you. Just sit down with your child and, and tell him or tell her that um, this is where you were in error. And if you didn't do that or didn't say that, you didn't speak with that tone, whatever the, the situation was, um, then you wouldn't, um, wouldn't need the correction. So accept the correction. That's what a Christian ought to do. When anybody points a finger at us, we need to say if it's a legitimate point. And, and then we can repent and we can ask for forgiveness. Um, but um, don't let tone, things like tone, don't let it be a big deal for, for you or your child and the idea that we, we need to stick up for our son, and you said it's a son here, uh, stick up for your son. Um, innocent people don't need to be defended. God will do, it, do the job. God will do the job. So don't, we don't have to show off for our kids. We don't have to, 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 to demonstrate that uh, we, we can solve the problem. Your son 
uh, will do just fine. Talk about what's valid about the correction and leave the other person to deal with the Lord on the other issues. That's really important. We, we, uh, we feel like, well, I, I, I needed to be there. Um, you're not a bad parent. We, we don't need to defend our children, especially when they're in the right. What we need to do is simply be there for them. Let me say this, and we're running out of time for this half of the program, but one of the things that um, has changed so much from the time I grew up to, to now is when um, my teachers had a complaint about me. My mom, my dad never took my side. Not ever. They knew me. When we raised our children, Ronnie and Terry, we knew that if somebody accused Ronnie of doing something wrong, he probably did something wrong. There were some times we actually stood up for Ronnie when we shouldn't have, we found out later. When Terry, our younger son, was accused of something, we knew probably that's not true. We just knew the kids. And I think we as parents have to be real about our children. I've asked so many parents when they were saying, well, well, this teacher's out to get my son. Do you really believe that's true? Do you believe, as your son lied to you, well, something? Well, we need to be realistic. Thank you for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in the show today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Christy from our mobile app. Hello, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my question. My pleasure. Here's the question. If Galatians 3.28 states that we're all one in Christ, why are the Jews in Israel exalted? Also, who and where would the lost tribes the Bible talks about be? I appreciate your insight. Thank you. Um, Christy, a couple things. Um, let me read the verse that you're talking about to, for the audience, and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll do my best to answer your question. Um, Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, my problem, Christy, with the question is I don't understand what you mean uh, by Jews in Israel being exalted. They're not exalted. Um, the Jews are the most persecuted people in the history of the world. They're not exalted at all. Um, um, he came to his own, and his own received him not, and they have paid a hefty price throughout uh, history uh, for that rejection of their Messiah when he came. So I, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by exalted. Now, we, um, they're, they're, Paul talks in the book of Romans about, uh, and Jesus also spoke about this a lot, about Israel being the first fruits. Uh, our Savior was a Jew. Um, our church began um, completely Jewish. Uh, you cannot read the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry. If you do not understand the Jewishness of it, you're going to make all kinds of wrong conclusions. 
So um, uh, Israel is the homeland. Israel is a place where Jesus is going to return. Um, uh, Israel, the apple of God's eye. He chose Abraham and called out a people for himself. And uh, so, um, you know, there, there's great blessings that come with that calling. But there's also great accountability. And because Israel did not receive, individuals Jews did not receive their Christ, as I already said, uh, there's been enormous consequences uh, throughout the centuries. So I'm not exactly sure what you mean by why are Jews in Israel exalted. They need Jesus. They're not going to be saved without believing in Jesus Christ. They need to become Christians. And when they become Christians, when they're born again, then they're just like you, Christy. They're just like me. Um, that's when the Galatians 3.28 passage fits the context. There's neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile is what Greek means. Um, so um, it just puts Jews, whether they're in Israel or in um, the United States or anywhere else, on exactly the same playing field as as uh, uh, Gentiles, Jews, are, they're all together. And, of course, the same thing is for slave or free, uh, male or female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. So maybe you can email back or, or send, hit the app again and explain a little bit more clearly to me what you mean by Jews in Israel being exalted. They're not. Now, again, they're the first fruits. Uh, if if uh, Jesus says if... if um, Gentiles bring great joy to God. How much greater will that joy be when Jews are saved, when when uh, the people who were initially called by God turn to him? It'll be a wonderful, wonderful moment. The other question is about the lost tribes. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about lost tribes. There are no lost tribes. God knows where every single Jew is. He knows uh, what tribe they belong to. You know, the idea that there are 10 lost tribes is nonsense. What what the 10 lost tribes refer to, or at least should refer to, are those tribes in the northern kingdom uh, who uh, rebelled against God. And as a result of their rebellion against God, uh, they were um, conquered by the Assyrians. Um, um, the, the, the Assyrians intermarried with Jews. Uh, they became... Um, um, half-breeds. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. But there are no lost tribes. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the the silliness even, Christy, of people looking for the ten lost tribes, there's no such thing. When we get to the book of Revelation, uh, there's going to be um, 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Clearly, God knows where they all are. So there's no lost tribes. Uh, God gathered them all back together. Uh, we were able to trace um, the genealogies of, of the people living in Jerusalem right now. What we find is that there's uh, people that can be traced back to every single one of the tribes. And again, those 12 tribes, um, the original 12 tribes, uh, God hasn't lost any of them. He knows where they are. One of the things, the 10 lost tribes, you know, we get people try to trace their genealogies back to the 10 lost tribes, which is one of the silliest exercises in futility. Um, you know, you've got those that claim to be Sephardic Jews. They trace their heritage back to one of the 10 lost tribes. Um, that's just simply not the case. So 
I hope that explains. And if you want to hit us back on the on the uh, app with um, um, more a, a clear explanation of what you mean by Jews in Israel being exalted is, I'll be happy to deal with it. Thank you, Christy, for the question. Here is a question that was sent in by Ralph. I know that all religions do not lead to God, but how can I explain that Jesus is necessary to someone who does believe that? Um, Ralph, you don't have to really explain. Uh, the, the answer is simple. The problem, the thing that separates us from God is sin. And Jesus demonstrably, uh, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is the only one who has an answer for sin. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died as a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of those who were not perfect. People like you, Ralph, and people like me. So just tell them that's the problem. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. And then somebody will say, well, how do we know he was the perfect sacrifice and not Buddha or not Muhammad? And say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because when Jesus died, they put him in the tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Confucius didn't rise from the dead. So we know beyond any doubt, the evidence is overwhelming, that Jesus was murdered and then he came to life. And he lives even now. That's God saying, I accept his sacrifice for people like Ron. So that's how you explain it. And then people understand it's sin. Sin is the problem. And the only solution for sin is being born again. Faith, having faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here's a related question. This one is from Robert. He says, how can I convince someone who doesn't believe Jesus really rose from the dead? Um, Robert, you, don't, you can't convince anybody of anything. Don't even try. Just challenge them. And that's what I do. Uh, I ask them, look, can you read? Then read. Get some books. I mean, the, the evidence for Jesus' life, for his death, and for his resurrection, both biblical, biblical evidence and secular evidence, uh, the the evidence is overwhelming. I was listening to a commercial. I saw a commercial. No, it wasn't commercial. It was something on YouTube that came across. Uh, somebody sent to me. And it was one of these political guys on um, on YouTube who were saying um, that, uh, uh, well, you know, uh, I don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If he, in fact, was crucified, uh, there's no evidence at all that he rose from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming. What he's saying is, I don't want to look at the evidence because I don't want to be confused by the facts. And Robert, usually what I'll tell somebody like that is, look, if you really want to talk about something that's serious, then come and talk to me again. But you got to be honest and you got to dig in and find out for yourself. And if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then you are accountable to either believe it and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior or reject it and accept the consequences of eternity in hell. So that's, I think, Robert, uh, the only thing you can do. You can challenge him. But we can't argue somebody nor debate somebody. Uh, these are things that they've got to discern looking at the facts. They've got to discern whether or not those are real or genuine. And if people won't look, if their mind's already made up, then there's nothing that you can do. I had lunch today with a man who had a T-shirt said, Eternity matters, matters most. And um, 
sometimes we can look at somebody and say, you know, if I'm right, you're in big trouble. If you're right, I have nothing to lose. So don't try to convince them. Just challenge them with the facts and challenge them to look at the facts themselves. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate the question. Matthew asks, a friend of mine got divorced because he committed adultery. He later got saved and now now wants to marry the woman he committed adultery with. Is this okay? Um, The answer is yes. Uh, All of the sins that he was guilty of before getting saved, all of those sins are forgiven. They're forgotten as far from him as east is from west. uh, and, And all things become new. Uh, in Second Corinthians five seventeen, Paul writes, "Therefore, if any one is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come." So yes, um, um, I, I, now that he's a believer, we'd want to be sure that the woman. If I was the pastor here, I'd want to make sure that the woman is also a born again believer. Uh, I would tell him that he can't marry somebody who is not a born-again believer. That's to be unequally yoked and would cause all kinds of problems. But if he's gotten saved and now she's saved, um, they imagine the, the privilege and the joy, um, the, 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 the refreshing idea that we can start all over with a clean slate in Jesus Christ. So, yeah, that's a good thing, and I'm grateful that your friend uh, got saved. And I, I just, if, if you're in a position to give him some counsel, just ask him to make sure that the woman is a born-again believer. Uh, make sure they're involved in a church and let them know that you'll be praying for them and uh, applauding their new direction in life together. Here is... Tanya, Tanya from San Leandro. Hi, my friend. Good to hear from you. Hi, Papa. How are you doing? For an old guy, I'm doing good. Oh, you're not an old guy. You're like fine wine. <laughs> Get better with age. <laughs> that's what they say. I don't know. I'm not a wine drinker, but I'll yeah, but no, but, for it. But, but that's a good <laughs> sanctified lie, Tanya. <laughs> Papa, I have a question. I have a gal in one of my... Um, one of my Bible studies, and she's got a, a son. I don't know his age. He's probably, I know he's out of high school. He's in college, and um, he started dating this young gal, and um, he started talking to the girl about how he never had a choice in going to church or choosing what he believed because his parents made him go, and she's just devastated. And, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't say anything in the Bible study. I, you know, I just listen. And she said she's really heavy on my heart. Just, you know, she said, I feel like, you know, he said he gave his life to Christ. And now I'm wondering if that's even true. And, and I, you know, I try to encourage him to say, you know, it's his walk. And, you know, he, you've got you've to let him figure it all out. Mm-hmm. But that's just so much easier to say than to do. And, and, and I, I asked her, you know, I know for me, I had to really figure out what I believe, and then nobody was able to rock my faith yeah. um, because now I know, right? And so do you have any encouragement for someone like her who's, who's going through this? I mean, my inclination was if he doesn't like the rules, you can ask him to leave. You know, the, your house, your rules, and he's, he's certainly past high school. Um, so he's kind of causing discord in their home. 
Yeah, so he's, so he's he's still living under their roof. Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. That that sort of changes yeah. things. You know, Tanya, I think yeah. a change in perspective is what's really important here. Parents who made their children go to church, they should wear that as a badge of honor. They should wear that as a badge of honor instead of, of, of defending it or, or feeling bad because of it. Wear it as a badge of honor. And in this particular case, because he's still in the home or that child is still in the home, uh, as long as you live in this roof, under this roof, that's the rule and you're going to follow it. And, and just expect, you know, Jesus said he came to cause division in families. And uh, certainly uh, now this boy has got his own choices to make. But if he is going to make choices that are inconsistent with their rules in the home, then it's time for him to leave. It's time for him to leave. He's out of high school. Uh, One of the things that we just don't do in this culture anymore is insist that our kids leave. That's what we're training them to do. We raise them up to know Jesus. We, We demonstrate through our own witness that God is good, that God is fair, and that God is 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 true. And um, and then they've got to make a choice. And when they go out into the world, whether it's into college or whether they go uh, into the workforce or go into the military, whatever it is, um, they're going to have to make their own choices. And um, if I was this boy's father or mother, um, my response to that would be, of course, we made you go to church. Now, you've got to make the choice about what you really believe. Now you're an adult, and if you're not going to follow the rules here, then you have to go out on your own. You're making adult decisions, and there are going to be adult consequences. But she should wear that as a badge of honor instead of doing guilt or feeling bad. Now, uh, something that you touched on that I think is really important. Um, she's now he he made he had an altar call or he gave his life to Jesus, had a profession of faith, but now she doesn't know whether it's true. Uh, well, now they're going to find out. And what she's going to be able to say to the Lord, I say this to our church all the time, if your kids go sideways, if they end up walking away from Jesus Christ, just do everything you can to make sure it's not your fault. And she can say, Lord, uh, we did everything that we knew to do. We tried to live our life right before you. And um, we, we, we took him to church and we read the Bible to him. We had family devotions, those kind of things. Um, Now, Lord, he's yours. Chase him to the ends of the earth. And Tanya, as you know, because you talk to a lot of of kids, as you know, um, most kids go through a rebellious stage. Most kids uh, make bad choices. Um, uh, The thing is, a lot of those kids that were raised in church uh, finally get to a place where they come back home. And then we can rejoice like the father of the prodigal uh, son In Luke chapter 15, we can rejoice because our son who is lost has now been found. And that's all we can do. It's not her responsibility uh, to make him make the right choices, but it is their responsibility as parents to make sure that he has to live with the consequences of the choices he makes, either blessings for making the right choices or consequences for making the wrong choices. And uh, they can say, look, Lord, I did everything I could. And that's how parents can effectively pray for their prodigal kids. Uh, we'd like to think, well, I raised him in church. He got baptized and, and they, they answered an invitation. Uh, but the reality is when they get out into the world on their own, they've got their own 
metaphorical tree of choice that's set before them. And God has given them, through mom and dad, he's given them all the tools they need to make the right decision. And uh, the last piece of encouragement that I can give you is please let her know that God is proud of them for raising their child in the church, for not giving them a choice. And secondly, remind her that God loves your son way more than you do. And he's going to chase this child to the ends of the earth. Tanya, does that help? Oh, I think yeah, Tanya. Yes, Papa, okay. it does. It, no, it, I'm there, Papa. I'm here. Okay. It just, it just breaks my heart, you know, because she's just, you know, she said, I just don't know who my kid is. And I said, you know what, God's, I said, I said that God loves them more than you do. And he knows, but I just, I didn't say much because I just, yeah. I wanted to cry. You know, everybody's kind of, not everybody, but a lot of people have been through this situation and just, you know, it's, 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 you can't serve both masters. And, yeah. and I think when it comes to kids and all that's out there and it was just, it was heartbreaking. <laughs> I thought, yep. you know, cause I'll see her tomorrow. Cause Wednesdays are one of my Bible studies. Well, so just let, thought, yeah, well, just let her know how well she's done. Me. Tell her God is proud of her. God's pleased. And she did the right thing, and now her child has to decide what he's going to do with the information that he was provided. And I, I can't say this enough. If, if children, grown or not, are under your roof, it's your responsibility to make sure that they follow the rules. We're still going to church every Sunday. Uh, we're still going to do family devotions. We're still going to pray together. Um, and, and they should not be given a choice in that. And the world says that's controlling and and uh, brainwashing. Believe me, that son is probably being brainwashed by that device that he has in his hand uh, all day long, every day. And uh, we need to be sure that they have counterbalanced information to all of that. Tanya, I'll be praying for your friend, but please let her know that God is pleased with her and proud. And, uh, and, yeah. and just we'll keep praying for him, okay? Thank you, Papa. I love you. I'll see uh-huh. you guys at the end of May. I'll be I'll be home for a spell. Oh, great. I can't wait. Thank you. Right. God bless. 340-9585. I think we're inside five minutes now for the program, so I don't know if there's time to call. You know, I had a, a, one of the most godly men I've ever met. Um, and, uh, you know, I, he raised some children uh, who turned out really great. Uh, loved the Lord with all of their heart. And he says, you know, I know men that are so godly and they raised their children the same way I raised mine and they didn't walk with the Lord. And his question was, is it really that arbitrary? God deals with every single person individually. We don't get um, uh, off scot-free. God deals with us individually and we all have to make that choice. And I think we just need to do the right thing. Tanya, you are one of the Best people I know. Let me see. I've, um, here's one I can do quickly before we close off. It's an anonymous question. Um, Pastor Ron, what is a biblical view of the death penalty? Um, the death penalty is a biblical view. Uh, anonymous. Um, God says if a man takes the life of another man, his own life will then be taken. Um, Romans says that, that the, the nation or the, the, the government has been given the sword. That's, that's a reference to the, to the death penalty. Um, and, and there's reason for that. So um, the death penalty is just somebody that murders. Um, the death penalty is a consequence. 
And I think there are times when we, we, we view the death penalty as being cruel, um, but, but the reality is that's the price someone pays when they take the life of another. It protects society. It serves or used to serve as a deterrent. It no longer does because people live on death row for decades now, and um, so we've lost the idea of, of, of swift judgment. Um, but uh, it is a, a biblical concept that came directly from the throne of God the Father himself. So I think that's something that we need to understand and not, we don't need to defend it. Uh, the, the, the man or the woman who says, well, I'm opposed to the death penalty. Well, that's a person who in reality is opposed to justice for the victims. You see, God who is just, and by the way, there's going to be death penalty in the millennial reign of Christ. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus, and there's going to be the death penalty there. And um, what we need to understand is that um, um, God is concerned about both sides of the of the topic. The the victim needs to experience justice. So I think that's really really important. Excuse me, boy, I got started coughing all of a sudden. So the death penalty is biblical. You know, an honest, I had a question not too long ago. Somebody said, how can somebody be against abortion and for the death penalty? That's, they, they thought that was inconsistent. Uh, but it's not inconsistent at all. Uh, babies are innocent. And they are murdered in the womb um, to the tune of 65 million since uh, it was made legal in this country. Um when somebody intentionally takes the life of another person, you can't equate those two positions at all because somebody who in willfully intentionally takes the life of another person, they're guilty of murder. The baby in the womb has done nothing wrong. So there's nothing inconsistent about being pro-death penalty and, and anti-abortion. In fact, as Christians, that's what we need to do. Anonymous, thank you for the question. Well, we are running out of time. Um, it's uh, the end of the time that we've been allotted in the Tuesday program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful day. Hopefully, we'll connect again at 4 o'clock tomorrow. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.